What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Every now and then you come across an artist whose track record is so vast and impressive, it's difficult even to contemplate. One such person is here with me today, director Marty Kallner. He's been a transformative figure in not one, not two, but three entertainment mediums, sports broadcasting, music videos, and comedy specials. He's worked with the most iconic performers of the last 50 years, from the Rolling Stones to Aerosmith to Britney Spears, Whitney Houston, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, the list just goes on and on. Marty, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Fantastic. So uh, aside from just a, a nearly a half century of incredible work across a number of mediums, um, going back to the beginning of it all, you know, from what I've gathered and, and heard about you, you kind of had a, uh, a traditional, humble Midwestern upbringing that then led to uh, a psilocybin experience in somewhere around the counterculture of the late 60s that unlocked just a, a, a tidal wave of creativity for you. Um, would love to hear about that upbringing and how it led to that transformative moment for you. Well, that's, that's really true. I was an, always an artist, but didn't know it. Because in school, and when I went to high school, they didn't like uh, focus on that. They kind of frowned on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the uh, chemistry class next to the art class. So I was kind of a bum, kind <laughs> of playing baseball and in college and just floating around and psilocybin wasn't really popular at the time and my best friend went to berkeley and he came back in the summer we both were from cincinnati and he came back and he had this synthetic tube tab of psilocybin mm-hmm. and he said uh, let's try this so we rented a motel room down by the refineries <laughs> we were scared shitless and I can say that, right? No problem. And, okay. And um, we emptied this capsule in, into a glass of water, and the three of us drank the water. I must have got the biggest dose without knowing, <laughs> because all of a sudden, I could hear the birds on the trees, the bugs on the trees. I noticed things that I always looked at and never realized like the arrow and the FedEx sign and like the green tea and the Texaco sign. The issue was that I got stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay. It wasn't bad. It was great. And when I went back to school, instead of being the right rebel rouser and the womanizer and the drug user and the card player, mm-hmm. I'd be laying next to a tree reading Gibran and Sartre <laughs> and, um, and Nietzsche. It was like crazy. And I, it opened up the creative side. Now I've never done it again because I was afraid that I'd get stuck again. So about, and I really liked it. About three months later, I came out of it, went back to myself, but the creative side was open. Mm-hmm. And from that day on, I've been instantly creative. So have you been monitoring a little bit of the the kind of revival of psychedelics and psychedelic culture? It kind of disappeared on us from the late 60s and early 70s for about 30 years and then has been revived kind of at an odd crossroads with one music festival culture over the last decade. And then yeah. the uh, 
hey, I'm a tech guy who just exited and now have no worldly concerns and I need to go, you know, ascend to the top of Maslow's hierarchy and, and psilocybin is what's going to help me. Have you been monitoring that? A little bit. You know, microdosing has become very popular. Um, yeah. I, I mean, mushrooms have become popular. Listen, psilocybin is a wonder drug. Um, mm. You give it to cancer patients and they suddenly don't feel pain. And you give it to people with high anxiety and then it helps get rid of it. I mean, it, it really is a wonder drug. I mean, the fact that it's illegal or was illegal just, you know, goes along with the government. That's the way it runs. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I follow it a bit, but I'm more just live it, you know, and, <laughs> and I'm just lucky because it was always in there. Mm -hmm. I hate people. I didn't know why I hated it. I mean, mm -hmm. I would get through it because I could figure out how to maneuver, out maneuver the system. But I don't think I did homework once my whole life. <laughs> I still managed to graduate in the upper half of my class. And I know I, craftiness. Never, I know I never went to a class in college, but I'd always figure out a way to, you know, get there. And mm -hmm. I was smart. But I wasn't interested. I thought the teachers weren't. Yeah, N not everyone's meant for the structured environment. Many artists will tell you the same thing. They hated the structure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're free form thinkers. You can't predict when an idea is going to come. Mm -hmm. It just happens. And, uh, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years, I've learned how to technically focus it. But mm -hmm. in the beginning, I was just faking it. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Kind of faked it till, faked it till I made it. And uh, but I was always good. I just, I just didn't really. It was just my gut, my instinct. And then well, I learned the crafts. You know, well, it's like anything. It, it, those those guts and those instincts in that period where you were faking it seemed to uh, drive you. And one from the art artistic and creative discovery to realizing you are a visual person and, and being a director in that medium. And initially your success, you, the initial success you found was in the world of sports as a director for the Boston Celtics, and then getting, I, I believe, poached by HBO to, to essentially direct the first wave and generation of HBO sporting events. Yeah, I did. And their specials I got away with being a visual person. And that's mm. a story how that happened. But, <laughs> but I learned about 30 years ago, the form follows content. It mm -hmm. wasn't about the style or what it looked like. It was about the story. It was about the heart. It was about the mm -hmm. side. Now, I always made things beautiful because that's how I started. But I learned that form follows content. And I was in a position where if I had a beautiful shot or beautiful content, a scene that meant something i'd always throw the shot away and go with the content and i think that's really been the my success is i make hits i make things that people feel mm -hmm. okay try and touch their heart and not their eyes but it is beautiful it's just and, not and, and so when you say form follows content how did that apply to that first wave so i believe you you, you know you were your uh work was recognized with the boston celtics hbo hired you you had you know they started doing wimbledon they started doing some some football games I and mean, applying it to sports broadcasting at this time i believe it was the the mid-70s or the late 70s what what stories were you trying to tell how did you weave those stories into for instance a wimbledon broadcast I was all about form in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then when I started doing the Boston Celtics, and it was after my trip, I started doing things that nobody had done before. Nobody had gone barate. Nobody had told stories before the show, mm -hmm. setting it up, you know, and I did that. And then I got noticed in the Boston papers for it. And I had, um, I'm just going to divert a little bit to sure. tell you what happened. And, so I had two offers because I was freelancing doing HBO sports. They only had about 300 subscribers <laughs> and I offered NBC sports to be the guy Wimbledon, Kentucky Derby, Super Bowl, NBA championship, NFL. I, I wanted to be, they wanted me to be the next Harry Coyle who was the guy. Mm -hmm. And that was for, 
$85,000 a year, which in that time was a ton mm, of money. Nice. And then there was this little company that said, we can only give you 35,000 a year, but you can be in charge of the look of the network, the feel of the network, that music, da 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 that was mine. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, tenants, which, which was, you hire a creative person and you trust them. And if you like what they do, you hire them again. If not, you don't. Unfortunately, HBO is the only company that still does that. Mm -hmm. And I could be like a big fish in a little pond. And I took the HBO and um, there was only like seven people there. And I started doing entertainment stuff. The first thing I did was the first stand-up special of all time. And I designed the set. I designed the lighting. Again, I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was just going off guts, you know. And and I remember him saying, "Shit, what a catharsis!" And then I put the seven dirty words on television. You can't put on television. Yeah, so it's just to back up to frame it for the audience. So this was with George Carlin and his bit, the seven words you can't say on TV, and you were able. And. He taught me comedy. Carlin did? Carlin. So. What What are the key principles of comedy that you learned from George Carlin? Well, what I learned as a director is don't, don't try and show off your tricks. Let the comedian direct you. It was kind of reportage. And he also taught me the timing. Like if you're making a cut on a, on a piece of comedy, if you make the cut a millisecond early, you are anticipating. Mm. And the feels it, they don't know it. And if you make it a millisecond late, you miss it. So there's only like one millisecond where you can make the cut. So that taught me preparation. I could imagine. And, prepare, and I'm one of the most fastidious preparers you've ever seen. If you look at the Justin Timberlake, Rolling Stones, Britney Spears, all the live stuff. I spent months preparing for wow. that stuff. And uh, I remember doing Robin Williams live on Broadway. Mm. Now, you know, pretty fast. Yeah. So I was inspired by all in the close up, all in the family close ups. And I wanted to shoot him right here when he was doing certain impressions. And I, again, like I said, there was only a millisecond I could hit it without mm -hmm. fucking, without messing it up. And so I went and saw him 40 times wow. around until I found his tell. And if you, and this is the highest selling comedy DVD ever, but if you look at it, you'll see he's got a tell. Before he goes into an impression, he always uses the word going. <laughs> and tell. I knew the hunk, and when I I said to my TD sitting next to me, wait for it, and he would say, going, I'd go, bang, and I'd hit it right on the moment, and live, you know, it was and crazy. You got, you got no room for error there. Zero. None. So we're, working with comedians, because everyone forgets Carlin, he was more of a physical comedian than people might, might remember, right? Because now he has so many good lines, they don't know his facial expressions, you know, you had to capture that. Robin Williams also... Yeah, yeah, but by directing you, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. When he's physical bit, you got to be on a head to toe. He's mm -hmm. able to see his full body and you have to know exactly when that's going to come or you miss it. I mean, yeah. many people miss it. Many people try and show off all their tricks. It's really basic. Mm -hmm. Important, you know, capture and, the talent, showcase the talent, show the, the fun. When, when I see you describe some of your videos on Instagram and captions and, and how you felt about them and how you approach them, it always seems to be a real focus on here's what makes the talent special. And I wanted to highlight what makes the talent special. I always did that. And then I started combining my stories with them. Okay. Because, you know, I, the performance got kind of boring, but if you look at like all the Aerosmith stuff, I was doing little movies. Yeah. And and what I had was Final Cut. Mm -hmm. So I was the only director that with the music videos that had Final Cut. And yeah. and that's why they were successful. 
and we will get to we were going to go deep on Aerosmith but backing up to your your initial entry into the music video world um, we were speaking with my buddy Eric Uberman and you mentioned that uh, uh, the you know early one of the early MTV videos Betty Davis eyes just how the the imposition of the the uh, video and the visual on the music really struck you and you just had kind of an aha moment that said listen I've got to leave my my successful job at HBO aside to go and do music videos and attack this new medium well i've always reinvented myself but what got me turned on was that there were no rules Mm -hmm. okay all of a sudden everything i had learned about film was out the window they were jump cutting they were doing incredibly fast edits it was it was they were breaking every law every rule they were crossing the line and it was so damn entertaining and fresh I, you know, I turned to my wife, he said, I got to do this. And I had mm-hmm. a seven year job. And so I, I quit HBO. <laughs> I'm an Erdogan and I had a name. So I'm an Erdogan was the big guy at Atlantic records. He mm-hmm. signed one of the stones and he said, I went to see him. He said, hi, Marty, how you doing? I said, I want to do a music video. He said, I got three bands, pick one. You may know the story. But one was uh, In Excess from mm-hmm. Australia. Another was a band from uh, New Orleans called Zebra. And then he had this other bar band he didn't know what to do with called Twisted Sister. Mm-hmm. And I just liked their comedy. Mm-hmm. And I met e. Snyder and I loved him. And I did this video, We're Not Going to Take It. Mm-hmm. The first video with a narrative on it in the in mtv's history and they played it like you know 30 times a day yeah you know? it must have been in heavy rotation back then when, and when metcalf goes what do you want to do with your life that's my voice going i want to rock really <laughs> amazing for the next now i'm represented by managers and caa but for the next 13 years while i was doing videos i had no agent no manager just mtv and my mm-hmm. phone upbringing. I could imagine. So going further and further and further and uh, pushed the envelope and got away with it. And so one one thread of 80s, you know, early MTV music and, and the music industry that you really explored was the hair metal uh, rage in the mid to late 80s. You did videos for Poison, Twisted Sister, obviously. Tell us a little bit about working with Poison. I believe uh, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, their classic. That was one of yours? That was mine, yeah. Amazing. And then White Snake and oh, yeah, White Snake. Oh, iconic videos. I found Tony Katane. I found Alicia Silverstone. I mm. found Tyler. And every rose has his form as a power ballad. Mm-hmm. I was trying to invoke a feeling, and it worked. My favorite shot in that video is when the bass player Bobby Dahl gets completely drunk, and they have to help him off stage and it cuts to a girl in the audience going she felt so bad and he said i want to do a shot drunk and i said only if you get drunk (laughs) (laughs) and uh again i always had this final cut so i knew when it left my hands because i was from the midwest Mm -hmm. i had midwest values that if i liked it you know, the audience would like it. Mm -hmm. And I never let it out of my hands until I was 100% happy. Mm -hmm. I did it and I wasn't happy and it flopped. Which one was um, that? It was a heart video called Mm -hmm. uh, Nothing All. And I let a shot out where Ann Wilson didn't look so good and and the video flopped. That's the only flop I ever had because I was relentless. And I got my eye in a strange way. I grew up in my parents were divorced. My mother was very poor. My father was Rockefeller wealthy and he died when I was 10. I didn't see him when I was two, but my house in Cincinnati, none of the furniture match, none of the silverware match. There were stolen sweet and low packs. There were, and there were pictures on the wall from like Kmart that cost like $2 of ships and, <laughs> seascapes and landscapes and that's what i knew mm-hmm. so my father died at 10 his my father's side of the family said oh my god 
he's got this kid and he's the last corner. We have to culture him up. Mm-hmm. So every, every year between the time I was 10 and 18, I spent my summers in Chicago and I would go from Cincinnati. I was so poor. I would fly in my baseball uniform and I would get picked up by the family show for Archie and mm-hmm. brought um, penthouse at the Drake hotel where I would be exposed to real Picasso's real Monet's real Chagall's. It was unbelievable. And I didn't realize it, but by osmosis, I got an eye. It was easy mm-hmm. to see the difference between the Kmart ships and the multi-million dollar artists. Mm-hmm. They were, it's very interesting to reconcile with you being the the guy to direct the videos of the hair metal era that was so in your face and loud, but like unabashedly hedonistic with the, you know, with the hairspray and the beautiful rocker babes and Tawny Katane on the hood of the car and the white snake video. And how do you reconcile that culture? Interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on, you know, what you experienced growing up and how that informed how you approached. I started shooting women. Okay, because mm-hmm. I would make women really beautiful. And if you ever look at my resume, you'll see mm-hmm. Whitney Houston, Bette Midler, Britney Spears. I mean, the list yep. goes on and on. And I started with Stevie Nicks and I did a show called Belladonna. And I was hired because I made women look so gorgeous. And this eye, and I made everything beautiful. And at that time, that was what. The, the industry was looking for twisted sister metal bands, just an accident. <laughs> and then and all the metal bands called me. Yeah. I like to work. I didn't even think <laughs> so I worked and it just turned out that I created a genre mm-hmm. and wife did all the hair and that big hair was popular. Then she did Tawny Katane's hair oh, and that age for a year just she got for a year magazine, that color. So it was all kind of like just happened because the opportunity would present itself. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, let me hear the song. I always pick good songs because there were your scripts. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, say, yeah. Age and ain't on the stage. Same with songs. If the song is great, the video is going to be great. doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. If the is shit. It doesn't matter what you do. It's going to be shit. Yeah, it's a tough one. That's a tough one. I always tried to pick, you know, I just kind of got better as I went along. In the beginning, I was great. I mean, Belladonna, Stevie Nicks did. You know, she got me into rock and roll. I didn't know who Stevie Nicks was. Wow. I was directing Camelot on Broadway mm-hmm. and Richard Harris. I staged it and directed it. And... HBO was working for Time Life. They were like a magazine company and they would give you assignments. Now, HBO, Camelot's finished. I am, it's kind of a watershed, Waterloo moment. And, you know, I was loved between between uh, the coast, but New York and LA hated it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I was like sad and upset. And uh, HBO called says, your next assignment is Stevie Nick. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. I Stevie Nick's was. I I got next morning, I got on an airplane, got to LA. And in those days, they could pick you up at the gate. Mm-hmm. And Ernie Azoff, her manager, came to the gate and picked me up. And he said, are you ready to meet Stevie? I said, yeah, where is he? <laughs> he said, he's at Dan Tana. And... <laughs> I went to see him, no cell phones at the time. I went to see him. She saw me and she started laughing. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't leave her house for three months. No wow. affair. Wasn't an affair. It was just, I was so mesmerized by her honesty after coming off Broadway, which was all bitchy, moany mm. uh, theater performers. So all of a sudden I was with this woman that was so pure and so honest. I just couldn't get enough. And I was preparing for this Belladonna, but I prepared like I never prepared before. And, you know, I'm all about creating magic. I'm kind of like really a lot of things about me, a lot of different levels, but 
my, my goal is to create magic. And if you go back and look at Belladonna, it was her first foray from Fleetwood Mac, and it was magical. And the next day, she sold two million records. Wow. And it was like, you know, I've done a lot of stuff with her. I've done three or four concerts, five or six videos. She's another one of my best friends, you know, and it was all about beauty. But then I started <laughs> figuring it out, you know? And if you look at the Aerosmith videos, those are all about heart, about stories. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. get into those your relationship with aerosmith 18 videos including the the you know net the, the unmatchable trilogy of crying crazy and amazing uh, i think you mentioned your favorite was living on the edge correct yeah incredible videos yeah that was just all me <laughs> just crazy but it turned to be foretelling you mm. know no guns and backpacks then and you know, I mean, it's like there's a lot of layers to that, too. And I'm mm -hmm. a big believer in layers and dynamics. I mean, this is all stuff I learned along the way that now I can mm -hmm. out and wax eloquently. But, you know, it was kind of like weird, just kind of right. kept better and better. Well, at that time, because people, you know, some people, some younger people might not quite recall these Aerosmith videos were like little movies. They were massive productions. People who didn't grow up in the the, the heyday of music videos, the late 80s, early 90s rock, you know, the handful of acts that really went for it with big budgets and high concepts that you were one of the, if not the top director for one of them. Um, you know, what was it like having to shoulder that type of burden for, you know, and get everything packed into three, four, five minutes and, and those types of event videos that really only existed for about a, you know, five to six year period? Well, they were all million-dollar videos. I mm. was scared to death. I didn't want to disappoint people. And I mm. had this philosophy that you're only as good as your last project, especially mm. in town. So I had right. I had no choice. Mm. And, uh, and that's what I did. And um, so I loved it. I was... Uh, I was really in, enjoying it, to be honest with you. And uh, the results are the results. It's all about the work. But MTV would play this stuff. Remember, MTV needed content. Yep. They got good content. They play it over and over again. Oh, yeah. Like Paola in the radio days. Mm -hmm. Well, just, you know, one of the biggest ones I did was share on the battleship. Yeah. Yeah. So, if I could turn back time. Turn back time. Yeah. Yeah, what what gave you the idea for that one? That came out of nowhere. Um, I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. I knew it would be a performance piece, so I tried to get like a damn and nothing worked. And finally, my my AD said, "What about a battleship?" <laughs> and I went and met on Missouri, and you know, I had to eventually get permission from the white house and i took the position that this video would be good for their recruit recruiting mm -hmm. and took the position that you know it's going to be provocative and you know it's going to piss off the women in the navy which it did <laughs> but i finally had to get permission from the white and they gave me permission and um so i get so sheriff said to me what should i wear I said, well, you're Cher. You should be outrageous. Mm. And she called Bob Mackey. He designed this body thong for her. And, <laughs> but it was just covered her private parts and nothing else. And not even her ass. So, like, so we were in rehearsal. And then they said she's ready. And like the dutiful director that I was, I went back to the Winnebago to escort her to the ship. You know, I wanted her to straddle the guns and, you know, boots <laughs> on that ship. It was very phallic. And she, I go to pick her up and a door opens and she's in this thing. I was in shock. I just like froze and she walked by me mm -hmm. and I had, and she had all these tattoos on her ass. And I, <laughs> oh, how clever, tattoo underwear. 
<laughs> well, make the story short. Oh, oh, I went out and I had this little liaison, this little guy named Steve Honda. And he, at one point he calls me over. He says, uh, Marty, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, she can't wear that. I said, really? <laughs> she can. I said, you tell her. And he didn't balls to tell her. So she wore <laughs> And then the Navy complained. MTV for a year said, okay, it's controversial. We're only airing it after nine o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. They air every night at nine o'clock. And <laughs> so big, some of the networks were pushing back the start to their shows three minutes because yeah. they knew they'd be watching. I mean, that was crazy. That's but, incredible. And once again, to people who weren't, you know, culture is pop culture conscious at that point, go back and look at a video like shares. If I could turn back time, these were groundbreaking videos and, and really moved the culture when there was the monoculture, when there was only, you know, a five or six TV stations and a few cable channels like this, this really had concentrated audience. And don't forget hard knocks. I, I, I don't like to say this because it sounds braggadocious. Others have said, I, I mm-hmm. probably be argued that I influenced pop culture in the last 40 years more than anybody else. I'd say it's up there just so everyone, we haven't discussed it yet. This man also created Hard Knocks on HBO, right. which is just a, a modern marvel. You're like, how do they turn around these episodes so Okay, let's ask that question. How on earth do you guys turn that around so quick? Well, NFL Films does the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had this idea and my manager knew somebody in the NFL office. And so can you imagine this hippie convincing 32-year-old, 30 NFL owners that I had something good for their game at the winter meeting? <laughs> you know, nobody breaks the shield of the NFL. But, you know, I, I had this idea. I went to NFL. They kind of liked it. They said, well, if you get HBO, we'll consider it. And I... Mm-hmm. It says we kind of like it. If you get the NFL, we'll consider it. Nobody thought I'd get anybody. And I told them both I had the other one. I didn't have either of them. <laughs> so at the winter meetings, Brian Billick, who had won the Super Bowl the year before, was a PR guy. He said, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. And then it took off. It was like, and how we turn around so fast, it crews like 80 people. There's wow. 12 editors. And it's all fiber optic optic to Philadelphia to be edited so we can get it on time for the, you know, in the first three or four years, I really shaped it. And now it's on autopilot, but my Mm -hmm. opinion, the two, you know, it's all about the cuts. Okay. That's what hard knocks is about. It's about 70 guys fighting for 50 jobs in six weeks Mm -hmm. and big difference. Making it is a big deal. Missing it. You can be carrying bags at the airport and yeah. and the difference is razor thin and they're all big. They're all fast. And, you know, it's mental. You know, who's mm-hmm. got it are the ones that survive. What's a veteran going to do to keep his job? What's the rookie going to do to take his job? It just had so much. It was it was it's a reality show. But I didn't even think about it as a reality show. It's kind of like the first reality show, but it's based mm-hmm. on real. It's not yeah. on some some scriptwriter writing a script, you know, like the Kardashians do. I mean, it's entertaining as hell, but this is real, and you know, people's lives are affected. So yeah. you, know, you see and, those stakes, and you guys capture those stakes where these guys who have been well-regarded athletes at worst for their entire life up to this point, where they're rookies and they're trying to make the team, they've never not been a big deal. For the first time, they might be a small deal and they might this thing that they've worked on their entire life. This might be the actual end. This could be. Wait a second. okay, I now have to completely shift my entire existence if I don't make this. Correct. And it's serious because they've never done anything for themselves and they're trying to make it so they can buy a house for mom Mm -hmm. who sacrificed her whole life for you to be there. You know, you're a star and high school you're starting college and now you're on a stage where everybody's as big and as fast as you are yeah so it's it's and you only got six weeks yeah and alive i mean it's hard 
And it's also great theater when someone makes it. It's incredible theater. And also, you know, you, it seems uh, one of the other consistent themes through the season is finding the interesting interactions between the coaches because the coaches have to make these decisions and they're having the discussions about these players, uh, you know, when the players aren't around in absentia and, you know, hi, the you see how you've got to highlight the head coach. It's interesting that Brian Billick and interesting that he was kind of the original engine, someone who recognized this and says, wait, anyone who is a professional NFL uh, head coach has to be orchestrating so much. These are not small personalities. These are all people who are somewhat stars into themselves. If, I've, if not, nobody's going to listen to them. Right. And we got women interested in football because they saw these guys without the armor. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernardo Giovanni slept in his mom's car, you know, wow. late on Sunday. And and the women uh, audience just went crazy. And mm-hmm. reason in women is what HBO, what NFL really got turned on by. Yeah. No. So, you know, and then I keep creating new things. I, I just invented and created the stand-up comedy hall of fame and the mm-hmm. show aired called the hall. And, you know, I mean, I just, that's just me. I, I, um, I always reinvent myself like it's, Madonna. Yeah. What? Yeah. I was about to say other really iconic women that you've worked with. Uh, let's hear about Madonna and then Britney Spears. Well, they're different. Totally. Different. I could imagine. We you can't know. wait to hear Brittany is kind of vacant and <laughs> fishy. So it was uh, it's a, two, a whole different experience. Mm-hmm. I shot Madonna and the one in Australia and Brittany in Vegas live. The one mm-hmm. I was in love, especially with two female artists, Stevie Nicks and Whitney Houston mm-hmm. of Whitney. I did a special with her in South Africa and another one in DC. And she was the funniest brightest, sweetest, most normal person you ever met That's in your awesome. life. Wow. And uh, I was crushed when she died. I was crushed mm-hmm. when, you know, yeah. in his first special, his last special. You know, when I talk about it, I realize it's been quite a run. It's been, you got some names there, man. It's been <laughs> quite a run. Dude. I wasn't whistling Dixie at the at the top. Okay, uh, it, it, the list is o- almost overwhelming, um, and not just you know. It, it, listen, the the hair metal stuff in the eighties super interesting. You can look back and and say uh, every rose has its thorn. Or Pat Benatar's "We Belong." Oh wow, incredible nostalgia value, major hits at the time. I mean, the top of the the industry, uh, you know, through the decades and hair metal and er, you know the early two thousands, Britney. Spears boy and girl band uh, phase. I believe you worked with NSYNC as well. Is that correct? What was the last question? Uh, NSYNC, you, you, Britney Spears, the, from the boy band, girl band, you didn't just work with Britney, you also worked with NSYNC? Convinced Justin he should be on his own. And then I did Justin <laughs> in Madison Square Garden with 47 cameras. My second wow. video was We Belong. It was 100% different than We're Not Gonna Take It. And I was trying to show that not I could be raunchy and funny. I could do art and mm-hmm. belong as an art piece. Again, I, I was just stretching out. You know, he was mad. I tripped and fell into that We Belong video. I find it interesting that you had, you also kind of highlighted, because you hear the song and there's that that drum, in, a pretty aggressive drum in the background, and it's you had almost the drummer almost standing up and, and kind of highlighted the drummer behind Pat Benatar. I found that interesting. Myron, Pat gave me my nickname, Marte. <laughs> I loved her too. I, I mean, I had a great time. That's I, great. When I look back on it, I had a great time. Now, okay. I had assholes, mm-hmm. but policy of the, the no asshole policy. And if it's not going to be fun, I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't have an ego, and I don't want people I work with to have an ego. And, uh, you know, what Cher said was, you know, or Bette Midler said to me, the best thing about you is you don't have an ego. I said, I just want to make a great product. Mm-hmm. That's that's the only thing I care about because that's the only thing that's going to live. Yeah. And, and that's, you have that focus. I purposely didn't want to get famous. So I tried not to and mm-hmm. said, you know, always be known for a body of work. And that's what happened. And have relation deep relationships with some of the most iconic figures and great people of the the last half century. I mean, it's really something else. And did you? I think I saw you, you have directed some features. Did, did you? And did the bug ever, you know, kind of invade you to do a few of those? 
I started to, and I realized that I couldn't get final cut. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was a first time feature director. They weren't going to give me final cut and I wasn't going to work two years for someone to screw up my vision. Yeah. And, and there's all this interference. That's why there's so much mediocrity. And I just said, I won't do a movie until I get final cut. And I'd be offered obviously a lot of films and I would say, I want final cut. And they said, Oh no, no. I said, okay, bye. I mm-hmm. said, I'm making movies. I'm having a good time. I don't care. Yeah. And I will do uh, some films before it's all over, but I have enough, mm-hmm. enough uh, uh, gravitas now that I'll get final cut. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. The comedy special world, as we mentioned before, groundbreaking work with Robert Klein, George Carlin, a um, couple more recent, you know, icons of comedy, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you worked with. First special, Billy Crystal's first special. Wow. I mean, I did all those young comedian shows. I, I, I yeah, a lot. You name them, Chris Rock, and we did that from three countries. Yeah, yeah, let's hear about that, because that was another innovative groundbreaking. If you don't recall, uh, I believe it was Kill the Messenger, Chris Rock, yep. and you guys <laughs> intercut from three different performances. How did you make it all sync up? Well, Rick Rubin had an idea to shoot it in three countries. But mm-hmm. his idea was to do 20 minutes from Africa, 20 minutes from London, 20 minutes from the Apollo. And I said to Chris, what if we make it all one show? He mm-hmm. said, never do it. You can try, but you won't pull it off. I said, okay, I'm going to try. So I did it and I edited it. And he walked in the editing room. He said, you did it. He somehow, and it's seamless. What it does is that for the first five minutes, it throws you because you're saying, what the fuck is this? What the hell is it? What are they doing? And then you get into it mm-hmm. and then it, it takes you over. It, yeah, you would cut almost within the same joke, and there's continuity between. Now, Crazy. Just like I did in music videos. Wow. Wow. When I did first he- saw Russell Mulcahy do that, I got inspired by it. You know, all inspired were just a, a compendium of a lot of people's work. And, you know, you know, great artists, the, uh, don't steal they borrow and uh mm. so that uh, i happen to like the the cutting in the middle of people's phrases and words i just like because it's all about the editing you know my goal low mm. i have so many you know matt i have so many different yeah tenants that i do that all of that goes into making hits and what makes me happier is when my stuff would go to mtv i would satellite it in mm the day before it aired. That's how much they tried. And they would just put it back into heavy rotation mm-hmm. and, you know, and made one. White Snake, nobody knew about him. I had a loan of the money to finish the video. Wow. And this was, was uh, Here I Go Again, the the video that launched them, or did they already have a little momentum? Still of the night. Okay. And then Is This Love, which is my favorite of them. And here mm-hmm. I and just blew up and that was completely made up no thought jazzed up i called it a jazz day that's why i have a son named jazz (laughs) so was that noticing the chemistry between dave coverdale the uh, lead singer white snake tawny katane his you know video vixen girlfriend just saying all right we're highlighting this chemistry tawny's presence one of the you know hottest and most you know attractive woman out there right now and just saying turn it on and you know press go yeah and they got married. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, and man. I inter- worked with her and she died. Yeah. Yeah. She died. Was it last year or 2021? Yeah. 21. Yeah. Or, well, I don't remember exactly. Another. Just amazing artist I worked with who died. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Well, you know, you have that. You, you cast the, the net wide enough. At Robin Williams' funeral, Billy Crystal got up and said, "Welcome to Last Man Standing." You know, like amazing. Well, 
yeah, I've got uh, had the pr- privilege to you know get to know Zach uh, Robin's son, and you know he's just a great guy, and just Robin was a was an incredible loss. Um, in terms of the other, you know, I've got to go back to the crying video because that is one that still sticks with me. You're an 11 year old kid, you know, who's who's watching music videos and watching MTV, and that crying video with Alicia Silverstone was Stephen Dorff, right? Yes. Yeah. And just, you know, you discovered Alicia and, and kind of highlighted her in those videos leading to Clueless. You know, tell us about that and what, what informed that. Well, I wrote this video and I saw Alicia in a film called The Crush. Mm. She was 14. There was this one scene where she skated across the frame. And I said, I want to see her. She, she is one of my dearest friends. Mm-hmm. She walked in my office to kind of read for me. In the, she was 16. And the second I saw her, I knew that I was going to know her the rest of my life. Wow. Amazing. And I said, you want to do three videos? She said, okay. And and I made her a big star, but she later saved my life by making me a vegan. Mm-hmm. So I always often tell her, who won? I won. Game <laughs> <laughs> last week. You know, I sit her bare. I see her and talk to her four or five times a week. And she, nah, just... I saw this goodness in this pure, amazing spirit. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know it was going to do what it did i just know that i did crying and six weeks later she was on the cover of rolling stone now i i what i did was i shot so much film i shot like sixty thousand feet of 35 millimeter film to get that one minute and i went through every film every every frame and i just and the bar kept getting raised and what i put on the screen was my favorite looks and they mm-hmm. each one of them was killer. And when it was all put together, it looked like, you know, this is what she looked like all the time. I mean, she is pretty, but she didn't have that magic. I remember I said, it's all about magic. There's enough. If you shoot enough film, you can find magic. You find that's one of your gifts that, you know, if you, you, you observe something long enough, you will find that special moment that really captures the best, the best a person has to offer. Right. And when I and when I edit, I edited everything myself. I use this process where I keep looking at it over and over again. It's got to blow me away every time. And if it do- doesn't blow me away, mm-hmm. one, I take it out. So the bar gets raised. I can imagine. Speaking of blowing people away, ah, an act that you worked with that blew maybe more people away than anyone ever. The Rolling Stones. And you did you direct, was this the largest outdoor audience ever in the history of the world in Rio de Janeiro for the Rolling Stones yeah, concert? Yeah, uh, Mick Jagger used more than once. <laughs> video for crying. I was sitting obviously in the first few rows and the Stones performed that night. And mm-hmm. I turned to my wife. I've got to work with them. Mm-hmm. Finally, one day HBO said, Mick Jagger's agreed to meet you. He doesn't want to, but he'll meet you. So I met him at the Four Seasons Hotel in LA. And we had this hour discussion. And I said to myself, well, even if he doesn't hire me, I just spent an hour with Mick Jagger. Not bad. And I said, how oh, great. And then I left and I didn't think he was going to hire me. And I drove to my daughter's soccer game at Beverly Hills High. And the phone rang and they said, it was him. He says, you got the job. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I'll see you in New York. Wow. So in New York, and then I did this live and then it kept going. And yes, the one you're referring to was in Rio, 2 million people. Wow. But I shot him in Argentina, in Rio, in Amsterdam, in Paris, in London, in Toronto, at the SARS Festival, all, all over the world, nine times. So what is it? What's the magic about the Rolling Stones? What makes them the iconic rock well, band that survived through the decades? All right. Every director who had directed the Rolling Stones always focused on Mick. Mm-hmm. 
a little fills, they would go on Mick doing his thing, right? I thought that Mick was the brains, but the beating heart and balls was Keith. So instead of focusing on Mick in those guitar breaks, the music is always the same. I went to Keith every time. And Keith actually sent me flowers the next day, which is amazing for a guy who knifes people. And uh, <laughs> I think Mick liked it too because he didn't hit, he knew what I was going to do. And so he could actually take that moment off, you know, and that was my, that was my difference. And even when it was done, Scorsese did one from the beacon and he focused only on Mick. It was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. And I let the music direct me. And I just selected my shots based on what was all three, four times, four, four times. So I, I just let that direct me, you know, and I'd make them all incredible. I did a lot of tricks, a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, didn't even tell Mick it was live. And <laughs> yeah, I guess he liked it. I used squishy lenses and anyway, what's he like? It was quite a, he liked the, the special effects I was doing live. Mm. He always says, how do we make it different? How do we make it different? He's, he's a showman. He wants to make it unique. He wants to make it different. So I made it different. Incredible. And traveled the world with them. You know, when you travel with them, it's like traveling with the president. And hanging on my wall is a picture that Ronnie Woods sketched of me and handed it to me on the tarmac in Rio. And it says, what a director. So I hung it up. Again, another thrill. Rolling Stones. You know, yeah. I never beat him. And it doesn't get higher than that. It does not get, you You cannot aim higher. There's no higher possibility than working with acts like this across yeah. multiple different. So many times you kept coming back. <laughs> wow. So what's, what's next after all this? I mean, man, hard to top, but what are you looking at now? What well, excites you about content these days? Working on a couple new things. Mm -hmm. Um, we're trying to create a wedding festival weekend in Vegas with big talent attached. Mm -hmm. And uh, that'll be the biggest thing I ever did. We also create wow. a, a, um, a singing competition among professional athletes only. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much done with stand up. I've done it. And concerts you know i'm not i've done the you know something new and that's what's next and the hard knocks i'll always want i think the key is liv schreiber because he tells the story and weaves it he does, he's really good Getting involved now is when there's not enough live and i call i say hey let's not forget what the fabric is so i don't know yeah something yeah, well, we are uh, we are anticipating it greatly. Everybody out there, did I lie? I told you at the top, a, a resume that is just overwhelming. It's hard to fathom. Marty, I cannot thank you enough for joining us here today. Daughter Tess. What, sorry, what was that? Friends with my daughter Tess. Uh, oh, of course. And a shout out to your lovely daughter Tess, who I've been honored to know for a long time. Who's like Matt? You know, I, I've responded to her posting on some of uh, some of your, your recent content. I was like, man, I got to speak to that guy. She's like, yeah, of course, dude. We'd love to do it. So, Tess has an eye for talent, like her father. Love, really does. Amazing. So, she, she's been great. I enjoyed it tremendously. As did I, Marty. Cannot thank you enough, and uh, I, this should be out soon. And, and we'll uh, we'll let you know uh, in the next couple of days, and hope to speak to you again. Thanks. Continued success, my brother. Absolutely, Marty. Thanks again. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.